0: Of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapter 79, Segment 1. Philip went up to London a couple of days before the session began in order to find himself rooms. He hunted about the streets that led out of the Westminster Bridge Road, but their dinginess was distasteful to him, and at last he found one in Kensington, which had a quiet and old world air. It reminded one a little of the London which Thackeray knew on that side of the river, and in the Kensington Road, Through which the great barouche of the Newcombs must have passed as it drove the family to the west of London, the plane trees were bursting into leaf. The houses in the street which Philip fixed upon were two-storied, and in most of the windows was a notice to state that lodgings were to let. He knocked at one which announced that the lodgings were unfurnished, and was shown by an austere silent woman four very small rooms, in one of which there was a kitchen range and a sink. The rent was nine shillings a week, Philip did not want so many rooms, but the rent was low, and he wished to settle down at once. He asked the landlady if she could keep the place clean for him and cook his breakfast, but she replied that she had enough work to do without that, and he was pleased rather than otherwise, because she intimated that she wished to have nothing more to do with him than to receive his rent. She told him that, if he inquired at the grocer's round the corner, which was also a post office, he might hear of a woman who would do for him. Philip had a little furniture which he had gathered as he went along, an armchair that he had bought in Paris, and a table, a few drawings, and the small Persian rug which Cronshaw had given him. His uncle had offered a fold-up bed for which, now that he no longer let his house in August, he had no further use, and by spending another ten pounds, Philip bought himself whatever else was essential. He spent ten shillings on "'putting up a corn-colored paper "'in the room which he was making his parlor, "'and he hung on the walls a sketch "'which Lawson had given him "'of the Cai de Grand's Augustines, "'and the photograph of the Odelis "'by Ing and Manet's Olympia, "'which in Paris had been the object "'of his contemplation while he shaved. "'To remind himself that he, too, "'had once been engaged in the practice of art, "'he put up a charcoal drawing "'of the young Spaniard, Miguel Lajuria. "'It was the best thing he had ever done.' "'a nude standing with clenched hands, "'his feet gripping the floor with a peculiar force, "'and on his face that air of determination "'which had been so impressive. "'And though Philip, after the long interval, "'saw very well the defects of his work, "'its associations made him look upon it with tolerance. "'He wondered what had happened to Miguel. "'There is nothing so terrible as the pursuit of art "'by those who have no talent.' perhaps worn out by exposure, starvation, disease. He had found an end in some hospital, or, in an access of despair, had sought death in the turbid seine. But perhaps with his southern instability he had given up the struggle of his own accord, and now a clerk in some office in Madrid turned his fervent rhetoric to politics and bullfighting. Philip asked Lawson and Hayward to come and see his new rooms, and they came, "'one with the bottle of whiskey "'and the other with a pâté de four-gras, "'and he was delighted when they praised his taste. "'He would have invited the Scotch stockbroker, too, "'but he had only three chairs "'and thus could entertain only a definite number of guests. "'Lawson was aware that through him "'Philip had become very friendly with Nora Nesbitt "'and now remarked that he had run across her a few days before. "'She was asking how you were.' "'Philip flushed at the mention of her name.' He could not get himself out of the awkward habit of reddening when he was embarrassed, and Lawson looked at him quizzically. Lawson, who now spent most of the year in London, had so far surrendered to his environment and as to wear his hair short and to dress himself in a neat serge suit and a bowler hat. "'I gather that it's all over between you,' he said. "'I have not seen her for months.' "'She was looking rather nice.' she had a very smart hat on with a lot of white ostrich feathers on it. She must be doing pretty well. Philip changed the conversation, but he kept thinking of her. And after an interval, when the three of them were talking of something else, he asked suddenly, Did you gather that Nora was angry with me? Not a bit. She talked very nicely of you. I've got half a mind to go and see her. She won't eat you. Philip had thought of Nora often. When Mildred left him, His first thought was of her, and he told himself bitterly that she would never have treated him so. His impulse was to go to her. He could depend on her pity, but he was ashamed. She had been so good to him always, and he had treated her abominably. If only I'd had the sense to stick to her, he said to himself afterwards, when Lawson and Hayward had gone and he was smoking a last pipe before going to bed. End of segment one. Chapter 79. Segment 2. He remembered the pleasant hours they had spent together in the cosy sitting-room in Vincent Square, their visits to the galleries and to the play, and the charming evenings of intimate conversation. He recollected her solicitude for his welfare and her interest in all that concerned him. She had loved him with a love that was kind and lasting. There was more than sensuality in it. It was almost maternal. "'He had always known that it was a precious thing "'for which with all his soul he should thank the gods. "'He made up his mind to throw himself on her mercy. "'She must have suffered horribly, "'but he felt that she had the greatness of heart to forgive him. "'She was incapable of malice. "'Should he write to her? "'No, he would break in on her suddenly "'and cast himself at her feet.' He knew that when the time came he would feel too shy to perform such a dramatic gesture, but that was how he liked to think of it, and tell her that if she would take him back, she might rely on him for He was cured of the hateful disease from which he had suffered. He knew her worth, and now she might trust him. His imagination leaped forward to the future. He pictured himself rowing with her on the river on Sundays. He would take her to Greenwich. He had never forgotten that delightful excursion with Hayward and the beauty of the Port of London remained a permanent treasure in his recollection, and on the warm summer afternoons they would sit in the park together and talk. He laughed to himself as he remembered her gay chatter, which poured out like a brook bubbling over little stones, amusing, flippant, and full of character. THE AGONY HE HAD SUFFERED WOULD PASS FROM HIS MIND LIKE A BAD DREAM. BUT WHEN NEXT DAY, ABOUT TEA TIME, AN HOUR AT WHICH HE WAS PRETTY CERTAIN TO FIND NORAH AT HOME, HE KNOCKED AT HER DOOR, HIS COURAGE SUDDENLY FAILED HIM. WAS IT POSSIBLE FOR HER TO FORGIVE HIM? IT WOULD BE ABOMINABLE OF HIM TO FORCE HIMSELF ON HER PRESENCE. THE DOOR WAS OPENED BY A MAID, new SINCE HE HAD BEEN IN THE HABIT OF CALLING EVERY DAY, AND HE INQUIRED WHETHER MRS. Nesbit WAS IN. "'Will you ask her if she could see Mr. Carey?' he said. "'I'll wait here.' The maid ran upstairs and in a moment clattered down again. "'Will you step up, please, sir? Second floor, front.' "'I know,' said Philip with a slight smile. He went with a fluttering heart. He knocked at the door. "'Come in,' said the well-known cheerful voice. "'It seemed to say, come in to a new life of peace and happiness.' When he entered, Nora stepped forward to greet him. She shook hands with him, as if they had parted the day before. A man stood up. Mr. Carey, Mr. Kingsford. Philip, bitterly disappointed at not finding her alone, sat down and took stock of the stranger. He had never heard her mention his name, but he seemed to Philip to occupy his chair as though he were very much at home. He was a man of forty, clean-shaven, with long fair hair, very neatly plastered down, and the reddish skin and pale tired eyes which fair men seem to get when their youth is past. He had a large nose, a large mouth, the bones of his face were prominent, and he was heavily made. He was a man of more than average height and broad-shouldered." "'I was wondering what had become of you,' said Nora, in her sprightly manner. "'I met Mr. Lawson the other day. Did he tell you? And I informed him that it was really high time you came to see me again.' Philip could see no shadow of embarrassment in her countenance, and he admired the ease with which she carried off an encounter of which himself felt intense awkwardness. She gave him tea. She was about to put sugar in it when he stopped her. "'How stupid of me!' she cried. "'I forgot.' He did not believe that. She must remember quite well that he never took sugar in his tea.' He accepted the incident as a sign that her nonchalance was affected. The conversation which Philip had interrupted went on, and presently he began to feel a little in the way. Kingsford took no particular notice of him. He talked fluently and well, not without humor, but with a slightly dogmatic manner. He was a journalist, it appeared, and had something amusing to say on every topic that was touched upon but it exasperated Philip to find himself edged out of the conversation. He was determined to stay the visitor out. He wondered if he admired Nora. In the old days they had often talked of the men who wanted to flirt with her and had laughed at them together. Philip tried to bring back the conversation to matters which only he and Nora knew about, but each time the journalist broke in and succeeded in drawing it away to a subject upon which Philip was forced to be silent. He grew faintly angry with Nora, for she must see he was being made ridiculous, but perhaps she was inflicting this upon him as a punishment, and with this thought he regained his good humor. At last, however, the clock struck six, and Kingsford Kingsford got up. "'I must go,' he said. Nora shook hands with him and accompanied him to the landing. She shut the door behind her and stood outside for a couple of minutes. Philip wondered what they were talking about. "'Who is Mr. Kingsford?' he asked cheerfully when she returned. "'Oh, he's the editor of one of Harmsworth's magazines. "'He's been taking a good deal of my work lately. "'I thought he was never going.'" End of Segment Two Chapter 79 Segment Three I'm glad you stayed. I wanted to have a talk with you.' She curled herself into the large armchair, feet and all, in a way her small size made possible, and lit a cigarette. He smiled when he saw her assume the attitude which had always amused him. "'You look just like a cat.' She gave him a flash of her dark, fine eyes. "'I really ought to break myself of the habit. It's absurd to behave like a child when you're my age, but I'm comfortable with my legs under me.' "'It's awfully jolly to be sitting in this room again,' said Philip happily. You don't know how i've missed it why on earth didn't you come before she asked gaily i was afraid to he said reddening she gave him a look full of kindness her lips outlined a charming smile you needn't have been he hesitated for a moment his heart beat quickly do you remember the last time we met i treated you awfully badly i'm dreadfully ashamed of myself she looked at him steadily she did not answer he was losing his head He seemed to have come on an errand of which he was only now realizing the outrageousness. She did not help him, and he could only blurt out bluntly, "'Can you ever forgive me?' Then, impetuously, he told her that Mildred had left him, and that his unhappiness had been so great that he almost killed himself. He told her all that had happened between them, of the birth of the child, and the meeting with Griffiths, and his folly, and his trust, and the immense deception." He told her how often he had thought of her kindness and of her love, and how bitterly he had regretted throwing it away. He had only been happy when he was with her, and he knew now her great worth. His voice was hoarse with emotion. Sometimes he was so ashamed of what he was saying that he spoke with his eyes fixed on the ground. His face was distorted with pain, and yet he felt it a strange relief to speak. At last he finished. He flung himself back in his chair, exhausted. And waited. He had concealed nothing, and even in his self-abasement he had striven to make himself more despicable than he really had been. He was surprised that she did not speak, and at last he raised his eyes. She was not looking at him. Her face was quite white, and she seemed to be lost in thought. "'Haven't you got anything to say to me?' She started and reddened. "'I'm afraid you've had a rotten time,' she said. "'I'm dreadfully sorry.' She seemed about to go on, but she stopped, and again he waited. At length she seemed to force herself to speak. "'I'm engaged to be married to Mr. Kingsford.' "'Why didn't you tell me at once?' he cried. "'You needn't have allowed me to humiliate myself before you.' "'I'm sorry I couldn't stop you. "'I met him soon after you—' "'She seemed to search for an expression that should not wound him. "'Told me your friend was back.' I was very wretched for a bit, but he was extremely kind to me. He knew someone had made me suffer. Of course he doesn't know it was you, and I don't know what I should have done without him. And suddenly I felt I couldn't go on, working, working, working. I was so tired, I felt so ill. I told him about my husband. He offered to give me the money to get my divorce if I would marry him as soon as I could. He had a very good job, and it wouldn't be necessary for me to do anything unless I wanted to. "'He was so fond of me and so anxious to take care of me. "'I was awfully touched, and now I'm very, very fond of him. "'Have you got your divorce, then?' asked Philip. "'I've got the decree, NIC. "'It'll be made absolute in July, and then we're going to be married at once.' "'For some time, Philip did not say anything. "'I wish I hadn't made such a fool of myself,' he muttered at length. "'He was thinking of his long, humiliating confession. "'She looked at him curiously. "'You were never really in love with me.' "'She said. "'It's not very pleasant being in love. "'But he was always able to recover himself quickly, "'and getting up and holding out his hand, he said, "'I hope you'll be very happy. "'After all, it's the best thing that could have happened to you.' "'She looked a little wistfully at him "'as she shook his hand and held it. "'You'll come and see me again, won't you?' she said. "'No,' he said, shaking his head. "'It would make me too envious to see you happy.' "'He walked away slowly from her house.' After all, she was right when she said he had never loved her. He was disappointed, irritated even, but his vanity was more affected than his heart. He knew that himself, and presently he grew conscious that the gods had played a very good practical joke on him, and he laughed at himself mirthlessly. It was not very comfortable to have the gift of being amused at one's own absurdity. End of segment three.